word. As we look together now at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll be reading for us the entire chapter. It's only 17 verses. When I have concluded, I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together now at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The word of the Lord says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We have been working our way through a very brief sermon series of studying 2 Thessalonians. And so each chapter kind of carries an overarching theme that goes along with it. The first chapter, Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to endure persecution for the sake of Christ. Many of the Christians living in Thessalonica had unfortunately lost their jobs, been beaten, lost their lives, endured shame, endured all sorts of humiliation. They were starving. They were hurting. They were hungry. They were miserable. And this persecution is atrocious that they are experiencing. But Paul says, hold fast and endure. It will be worth it. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. And a lot of times I think you and I think about different Christians who've been persecuted over the years, and the Thessalonians don't often get lumped into that group of people. But let me assure you, they were persecuted. 
We, we even read in the chapter we read this morning, in chapter 3, Paul says that he set an example while he was among them. Why do you think that Paul, who had the right to not work among them, decided to work among them and earn his own living, if not to say, you guys are so persecuted and so destitute, it would not be a good thing for us to burden you with our sustenance. And so Paul, who was a tent maker by trade, probably worked while he was there in in some sort of mending tents, making tents, or did something to earn a living while he was there and set an example for the rest of these Thessalonians. Work and do what you can, but trust the Lord in the midst of this persecution. Then last week we looked at chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Paul is talking about how crazy it is that they have been deceived. We talked about that we are not the only ones who face misinformation and disinformation. Remember, Paul said there was a spoken word, there was a spirit, and there was a letter impersonating him saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Can you imagine in the midst of that kind of affliction and persecution, somebody pretending to be Paul telling you that Jesus Christ has already returned and gathered all the saints and you missed it. And here you are still suffering for his name. They were weak and susceptible to this. That's the whole reason that Paul writes this second letter to the Thessalonian church. He described in detail in the first letter to the Thessalonian church, here's how God will return. Here's how Jesus Christ will come back and the dead in Christ will rise and then we will meet them in the air. Walks through all of that step by step and then somebody comes along and says, oh yeah, that already happened. You guys already missed that. Listen, just because we're able to spread misinformation and disinformation easier today than what happened in Paul's day, it does not mean that it did not happen back then. And Paul has to clarify and say, no, the day of the Lord has not come. Stand firm because it is coming. The Lord will return and give some specifics about a man of lawlessness. Then he moves on to chapter 3. And chapter 3, what we just read... He touches back on something that he also spoke about in 1 Thessalonians. The biggest problem in Thessalonica is that people are convinced that either Jesus is coming back really soon or he already came back. And so those people like to sit down, prop up their feet, and do nothing. Do diddly squat every single day. They are sitting around idly, and you know what happens with idle hands? Idle hands truly are the devil's workshop, because not only are they idle and not doing any work and sponging off of all of these other Thessalonians who are working and contributing to the church, and know at this time the church is distributing still to all those who have need, well, I got need, I didn't get paid this week. Yeah, you know, they, they kicked me off my job at the guild because I was a Christian. So, you know, I got nothing to eat anymore. You guys help me out. And the church of Thessalonica says, sure, of course, brother, of course, sister, we'll help you out. And what they end up doing is enabling this laziness, enabling this idleness. And in the midst of that idleness, they're listening to everybody else's business. That's why Paul says to be busy, not be busy bodies. They had become gossipers. They had become slanderers. They were spreading rumors throughout the church. Did you hear about so-and-so? 
Did you see what happened to so-and-so? Can you believe that so-and-so went out dressed like that? Can you believe that they were drinking that drink? Can you believe they were eating that food? Can you believe that they missed this Sunday or that Sunday? That they haven't gathered together with the saints and the church in the midst of this Severe persecution is now imploding due to a bunch of gossiping busybodies who are yakking back and forth about stuff that ain't none of their business. Keep to yourself. Keep a quiet life, Paul says. Mind your own business and work hard. And he's serious about this. Don't miss what Paul says about them. He says at the end of the chapter, have nothing to do with them. If they aren't listening to what Paul's writing and they say, nah, we're just going to sit around, we're just going to kick back, we're just going to rest, we're just going to relax, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, today, anytime, anyway, so what's the use in working? What's the point in working? If they have that attitude, Paul says, he says, have nothing to do with them. Now, I don't believe that what Paul is saying in this verse is that you should kick them out of the church that you should quote-unquote excommunicate them or say that they're not Christians. What Paul is saying here is put them to shame. Warn them as a brother. Warn them as a sister. That's verse 15. Do not regard them as an enemy. You don't write them off. You don't pretend like, well, they're not welcome back in this church ever. They were idle. They were lazy. They were busybodies. They were gossiping. They cannot come back and worship with us ever again. But in our lack of association with them, they'll be ashamed. Man, how, how come you don't come hang out at my house anymore? Well, because every time I come and hang out at your house, you hang on every word that I say. And then as soon as I leave, you twist every word that I say and tell somebody else down the line some sort of rumor or gossip that isn't true. And so the consequences of you being all up in my business and being a gossiper is that we have nothing to do with you right now. I'm not coming to your house for dinner. Well, we go to church together, right. But until you show signs of repentance, there's a separation, there's a break in our relationship. You've been taking advantage of the church. You've been taking advantage of our relationship personally. So I'm following what Paul said to do. I'm having nothing to do with you until our relationship is restored. And the hope, the goal there is that the person will be ashamed and change their way of life. And change and get back to being busy about the business of the Lord. Listen, this, this is something that Jesus talks about. I know that it may seem like a small thing, right? And it may seem like, well, nobody these days struggles with this. Oh, but we do. But we do. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. We're going to read a story that Jesus tells as... People come and approach him and they're asking him to be the arbitrator in between a dispute about some inheritance. And then Jesus tells them a very poignant story, a very, very significant parable. Luke chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 21. In Luke chapter 12, the word of the Lord says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, being Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced 
plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And what a parable, right? But maybe you're sitting there thinking, I don't understand how this particular parable ties in with idleness. But let's look a little bit more closely at what Jesus says. What is this man's sin? Is this man's sin the fact that he built bigger barns? No. Is this man's sin the fact that he had a plentiful harvest? No. The sin of this man is when he decides and says to his very soul, to the essence of who he is, he thinks, now I've got it made. I won't lift a finger again. You see how big my barns are? You see how much grain is stored in there? Do you see how many goods I have laid away? I'm not sowing. I'm not cultivating. I'm not reaping. I'm not harvesting. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to sit on a cushion and I'm going to have my wine glass refilled anytime I want. And I will live off of the lavish harvest that God has blessed me with. I'll sell what I need to sell to make more money. I'll use the grain to make the bread that I need. Life is going to be good and easy from this point onward. And in that moment, God himself speaks to this man in this parable. And he calls him a fool. Don't miss how significant it is that God uses the word fool. When we read in Proverbs, the word fool is not used lightly. The word fool is reserved for those who deny the existence and wisdom of God. Proverbs teaches us, the entire book of Proverbs teaches us that the fool runs from wisdom. And wisdom is God and God is wisdom. And in Psalms we read, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Someone who denies God's existence is a fool and this very specific word is used by God in this parable of this man. In his actions, he has denied his dependence upon God. In his decision to be idle and to be lazy and to rest from all labors, he has decided he's a self-made man. He's decided he has done all that is necessary for him to have a comfortable life. I wonder, do you think God would have responded the same way if this man had said, what a plentiful harvest. This is incredible. We've never brought in this much grain. It won't fit in the barns. Let's build bigger barns. They store the barn, filled it, stocked to the brim with all the grain and all the goods and all the produce. And then that man says, now we have so much. What good can we do with this? 
How can we help those who are less fortunate in the kingdom of God? How can we use this to advance the kingdom of God? How can we use this blessing that God has blessed us with to be a blessing to others? Do you think God would have responded in the same way? I believe with all my heart the answer to that question is no. God would not call that man a fool because in his acknowledgement of the big barn, of the plentiful harvest, he's giving credit to God and seeking, how might I use this blessing to be a blessing? That's where the man's sin is. Is it wrong to save up for retirement? No, not at all. I encourage it. I think you should start saving for retirement. You should start saving early and you should save often. Put back as much as you can so that one day you can retire comfortably. But I want us to remember something. There's no such thing as retirement when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ. There is not a day where we arrive and say, well, I have worked hard enough. I have devoted enough of my life to Jesus. I will do nothing else for the kingdom of God. There's nowhere in Scripture that it teaches us that we get to reach this level of a certain amount of service. And now we can say, well, God, I don't owe you anything else. So I'm going to take it easy. That's this man's sin. There's no problem with saving up and retiring and being fiscally responsible. There's no problem if God blesses you with a bountiful harvest and you are wealthy and affluent. That is not the sin happening in this parable. The sin is now I will be idle. Now I will live like the Thessalonians who are just waiting for Jesus to come back, who's just sitting around doing nothing except getting up in everybody else's business, listening to the gossip that's going on, being the source of the rumors, instead of how can I advance the kingdom of God? So many of us have a mission, a goal, an adventure in life that we're trying to fulfill We set these goals for ourselves. Maybe you're a teacher and you're working your way up to be some sort of administrator. Maybe you work in a company and you see yourself growing in that company to a certain level. Maybe you own your own business and you are growing that business to a certain level. And we have these grand ideas and these wonderful visions of what our careers and our earthly jobs will be and how we will contribute to society. And none of us top and take the time to recognize God has a grand mission and grand adventure for each and every one of us. He has a purpose and a plan for you and for your life and for me and for my life. And it is a lifelong mission. It involves advancing His kingdom. There's never a point where we give enough service back to the Lord. Our salvation doesn't depend on how hard we work. The fact of the matter is, we owe everything to God. There's never a point that we reach where we've given Him enough because we owe Him everything. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. We do that because He freely gave of Himself on the cross. He was the only one who didn't deserve to die. And each and every one of us deserved to never exist. We rebelled. We were treacherous traitors. We were the Benedict Arnolds. Before there were Benedict Arnolds, we tried to stab God in the back. We're all Judas Iscariot. And all of us deserve the same fate. And Jesus, in His mercy, in His grace, He stepped into humanity. He lived the life that you and I could never live. 
He was perfect in every way that we failed. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted and yet did not fail. Experienced the full range of human emotion, but never succumbed to sin. The only one who was perfect. The only one who could be our sacrifice. And so he died on the cross in our place. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's a free gift. But when we understand that gift, We understand that we're making a lifelong commitment to follow Jesus. We're making a lifelong commitment to be His disciples. To do everything in our power to be more and more like Him. And there should never be a time in our lives where we sit around like the Thessalonians and kick our feet up as though we have arrived at that point. I would also say this. Sometimes in church, we get really hyper-focused on the only way to advance God's kingdom is to sit down and have a Bible study. And I, I want you to understand that is one of, if not the most important things that we can do. But God is not calling us to just sit and study His Word. He's called us to be living and active in our faith. He, he's called us to live life together as a community. To come together and do things for the advancement of His kingdom. To walk through life with each other in the good times, in the bad times. To go do projects at each other's houses and fix things up and talk about what God's been doing in our lives. It's not just, well, I don't want to be idle like those Thessalonians, so I better go and I better sit down and study God's Word. That is important. We should all study God's Word. But if that's all we ever do as a church, no wonder people feel like they can retire. They feel like, well, I have enough knowledge of the Bible, now I'm set. That's not how it works. We never graduate out of the Gospel. We never get to a point where we've just done all that there is to do. There's always somebody else for us to reach. Jesus has given you a specific set of gifts and talents and abilities, a specific and special way to relate to people. And there are certain people that are in your life that cross your path that you can take the blessing that God has given you and be a blessing to them and they might come to know Jesus. And then you walk with them in life and help them grow as a disciple and turn around and they do the same thing. The the analogy is overused. The illustration is all the time. But Billy Graham had to have a Sunday school teacher, right? Nobody ever talks a whole lot about his Sunday school teacher. But God gave that man a specific time and a specific talent to make a specific impact in another one's life. And look what God did with Billy Graham. Maybe you're not called to be Billy Graham. That's okay. I'm never going to be Billy Graham. Probably never going to be another Billy Graham. But God's given you a gift and an ability and a talent. And when you sit on the sidelines and you're not actively engaged in God's kingdom, when I sit on the sidelines and I'm not actively engaged in life and community, in being a disciple and making disciples, then I'm taking everything that God's given me and I'm sitting and resting on my laurels. I've brought in a bountiful harvest because God's blessed me. And I built bigger barns, and I said, well, now that i got bigger barns, now that i got this salvation thing handled, I'm just going to sit around. And I'm just going to, I'm not going to bother going to church. I'm not going to bother calling people. I'm not going to bother sharing my faith with people I run into at work or at the grocery store. 
you know, I'm, I'm just going to rest. I've earned it. I've earned it. I deserve this. Folks, we take that retirement attitude and we apply it to our faith. That's when we're the man in Luke 12 who was called a fool. That's when we're the Thessalonians who are chided and reprimanded for their idleness. God's given you a mission. It's not boring. It's an adventure. It is exciting. It is this life and the opportunity to live this life on mission for Him and with Him. Him living through you. Are you going to grab hold of His mission and chase it? Or are we going to be idle? Are we going to just sit in the pew? Maybe God's called you to have that hard conversation with that brother, that sister, that cousin. Maybe God's called you to have that conversation about faith with that coworker. Maybe God's called you to go over to somebody's house and do some sort of manual labor that they can't do on their own, that makes no sense to them why you're doing it. And there's a door that's now opened. Maybe God's calling you to reach out to that one person who's at home and lonely, and you've got the time to sit and listen. There are so many people that I know and so many stories that I hear that once certain Christians reach retirement, the ministry impact that they have grows exponentially. They take that time that they were using at their regular job, seeking to glorify God in their nine to five, and they pour all of that energy into the adventure that God has called them to. And they wake up every morning, how can I grow God's kingdom today? And I just wonder, is that you and me? Is that how we look forward to our retirement? Finally, I'll have time to go visit those people in the hospital. Finally, I'll have time to write those cards and encourage those people who are sick. Finally, I'll have time to pray with those cancer patients. Finally, I'll have time to go and raise up my grandchildren to know and love the Lord. Finally, I'll have time to take my son or my daughter, my grandson, my niece, my nephew fishing, and I can talk to them about Jesus and how we are supposed to be fishers of men. Is that what we think of when we look at our retirement? Or do we think, finally, I can give this Christianity stuff a break. And I can throw the church to the side and I'm just going to go see my grandkids anytime they want me to come. And I'm just going to go visit with them and I don't care if we talk about Jesus. I just want to hold them, those little precious grandbabies, and I just love them and I don't want to really have anything to do with faith. I mean, I'm just going to see them. I've done all the faith stuff. I raised my kids in church and now they've gone on. It's their job to raise their kids in church. Who cares about the Jesus stuff anymore? I did my time. Let me tell you, if that's happening in your heart, if it's happening in my heart, then I would... Dare to say that God would call to us in the same way that this man in this parable was called out by God and God said, you fool. The only way to spend our lives and be called foolish by God is to discredit that He is God. To not believe that He is there and to not believe that we owe Him our entire lives. Every moment, every day. Whether we're five or whether we're 85 or whether we're 95, how will you spend the rest of your life? 